welcome to this evening's episode of Atlantic Tales when we'll hear about the Museum of Irish Rural Life in Kilrush in West Clare established by local businessman Joe Whelan who has led a very interesting life himself. Joe Whelan established his own tractor sales business in Kilrush in 1968 after leaving the Irish Air Corps. Joe retired in recent years, leaving his sons to run the successful business. Never want to sit idle, Joe has been as busy as ever since retiring and is continuing his work to develop a unique attraction in Kilrush. His Museum of Irish Rural Life is packed with thousands of items of historical significance, from the tiniest war medal to the largest agricultural machinery, each and every one with its own story to tell much like Joe. I was born in uh, in Kilkee in 1943. We lived in Shra, which is two miles from Dunbeg and four miles from Kilrush. My mother would, had, when she had seven children, were uh, all brought to Kilkee to Nurse Connell in Kilkee to be born. She was the local delivery lady. <laughs> Later on, I went to Shra school, taught by a man from Dunbeg by Joe Hurley. Joe Hurley was a very good footballer in his time. Joe taught us all about football and everything else. And later on, uh, we uh, went in a stymie to the Christian Brothers. The West Clare Railway passed through our land and there was a small railway station 100 yards from our house. Three of the family went uh, 54 miles round trip on the West Clare Railway to the stymie. Sometimes we'd have the cows milked at quarter to eight in the morning before we got on the train. We were arriving in the stymie at about uh, quarter past nine. I would have put on the West Clare Railway, I maintain I put up 78,000 miles in a period of five <laughs> years. Most people wouldn't think that the West Clare Railway could travel that distance. When we were kids, our farm was mechanised in 1950 and we would wait for the West Clare Railway because it ran parallel with the road for about a mile and we'd race the West Clare Railway with a tractor when we were 10 and 12 years old. So we could race the uh, West Clare Railway from uh, our own house basically, especially when it would to have 20 or 30 railway wagons behind us bringing cattle from Kilrush in a cattle fair day and we knew well that we could beat that when it had so many wagons behind us. Yeah. We could pass him by the time we got to uh, the end of the, the townland which was Mount Rivers and he'd wave to us and we'd wave to him. We knew we had him beaten. But when he was empty? Oh, when he was empty we couldn't catch him. <laughs> they find out where the engine's been hiding and it drags you to sweet Corathin Says the yard backer down on the siding there's the goods from Kilrush coming in. With a good crack on the train. Yeah, it was a great experience. There'd be a lot of uh, joking going on and the boys would be weighing up the girls and who got the best seats alongside the, the most attractive ladies <laughs> would be a big issue. <laughs> yeah, I suppose we played cards and we had fight. The last train run was uh, 1961. On the return journey, when we came to Quilty Station, th there were seats thrown out in Quilty Station and seat coverings and anything that could fly. The guards had to be called in to put the stuff back in the train. Was this a sort of protest because it was the last Not train? really, it was acquir <laughs> acquiring goods. <actually. laughs> on, on a Saturday, uh, we would have a half day on a Saturday. And I remember uh, Evos decided that we'd, on a very fine Saturday, it must be around September that we'd walk home because we'd save maybe one and sixpence but we'd empty our school bags and we first thing we'd go to the orchard down the Falls Hotel and we'd rob the orchard and then we'd hit down along the track when we came to Renine there'd be plenty hazelnuts 
So we'd have apples and hazelnuts. We'd get as far as Milltown Malbe. We'd play handball up against the, the water reservoir. And then we'd hit off for Quilty. We'd stop in Quilty because Oliver Boyle was an old class. And we'd go into Boyle's shop in Quilty and we'd get ice creams. And we'd continue down as far as Dunbeg. And by six o'clock, roughly, the train would have arrived in uh, Dunbeg station. Spent the, the last two miles on the train again, we picked up the train. But you have spent your fare on the ice creams? We'd have spent our fare on the ice cream. <laughs> Yes, yeah, uh, there were great times. We probably didn't appreciate how good they were, but as you get older, you start to appreciate that the best your, your times are when you're young. And telling that to kids now have the same reaction as we had when we were the same age. Are you right there, Michael? Are you right? Have you got the parcel there from Mrs. White? Oh, you haven't? Oh, be gotta say it's coming down tomorrow, and it might. Now, Michael, so it might. Tell me what you were interested in school then, because your life revolves yeah, around when, history now. When, when, when I was in school, uh, I had a problem always with maths. Maths was, was my weak subject, but uh, I would dismantle everything that was at home, including the tractor when we were kids, and put it back together again. We, we, we learned the hard way. My father worked for the Ford Motor Company in America for a good number of years. My father and mother were both American citizens. They went to America when they were very young, and they came back after the Wall Street crash in the mid-30s, and they were seven seven boys in the family. We were brought up in a very mechanised environment, so we, we all ended up in mechanisation. My best subject in school would have been history, Irish. I'd have been good at Irish and geography and science. We even done everything through Irish, including Latin. Latin through Irish. We've done Latin through Irish, we've done science through Irish, we've done history and geography through Irish. And I would have been a very fluent Irish speaker when I was 18. We didn't speak Irish at home. My father and mother would have a bit of Irish, but we never spoke Irish at home. So after leaving school, I was probably 18 and a half. I joined the air court together with another member of my class, uh, Mike Legan, Ollie Egan and Paddy O'Grady, all done big people basically. When we joined the Air Corps we uh, were uh, presented with an exam and Mick Egan and myself done everything through Irish for that exam. We got I think 10% extra for doing our subjects yeah. through Irish. We did speak Irish for if we were coming to lift home or anything else we'd talk Irish to each other so then the problem was that that went away for the next 40 years there was no talk of Irish so I do find lately that uh, the Irish programmes, uh, we get a lot of Donegal Irish and Connacht Irish, but sometimes I listen to clear radio, that Irish can sinks in. T the television is a little bit fast for me now, it's, it's uh, uh, probably I'm getting slow. So you listen to Donald Lynchick on a Saturday yeah, morning? Yeah, I do. So. I, I, can, I, I can go with 90% of it, which isn't bad as it was, really. The first morning I was in class in Baldonnell, we had a teacher by the name of Noel Lucy. He was a great Kerry footballer. He asked the question, anyone knows Byles Law? I stood up sharply and I said, I know it. And I started off in Irish and he says, young fellow, he says, I don't know what you're talking about. They don't know what you're talking about. And I'm sure you don't know what you're talking about yourself. <laughs> so that's what I got for my, for my Irish. It, it was disappointing from the point of view that uh, some of the technical officers would have a bit of Irish, but generally speaking, it, it wasn't spoken only when we were doing military drills, which we had to do. What then, Joe, were you doing in the Air Corps? We had to do aircraft in general, all, all the different parts of the aircraft, whether it was engines or instruments or electrical cladding, which some of the old aircraft would have fabric cladding, and we would have worked on Spitfires and some of the Second World War airplanes. And then the helicopters came in. When I graduated in my class, I'd done instrumentation after that. That was basically the, the dials and altimeters and turn and stiff and the instrumentation. I stayed at that for four years.
As President Kennedy inspects the honor guard, thousands crowd the surrounding buildings to get a glimpse at this dominant world leader, whose courage and zeal had rekindled hope in the hearts of free men. And in your time in the Air Corps, you were in Dublin Airport when President John F. Kennedy arrived in Ireland. That's right. We, we'd done the Guard of Honor fan. And that morning, we were, we were brought out to Beldana. We were all young fellows, 18 and thereabouts. We had to do some military drills for a week before that, getting away from our technical education. Mm-hmm. So we had our breakfast early and we were told that uh, there'd be food available when we went out there. But unfortunately, there was no food. The plane was delayed a bit. So next thing, there was a lot of lads collapsing their rifles and it would be taken off to, to see him. We, we did enjoy that now and it was interesting to be in it. And you knew who Kennedy was, of course. We knew who Kennedy was. We were only five or six or ten yards from him. I kept all the papers from that period, the evening press and the, the papers. I still have those papers. You'll see them within the museum. But when Kennedy died, unfortunately, some of your colleagues got to go to the US, but you didn't. Well, the, the cadets and the, the full-time military would have got to go to Arlington, to his uh, grave. We never considered ourselves military staff, even though we were working under a military agenda. We were technical people to ourselves. That was, that was uh, our point. We were, we were there to learn technical skills. Starring George Pippard as Lieutenant Bruno Stockholm. Brilliant, brutal, ruthless. His great obsession, the Blue Max, an ounce of metal and silver. In the meantime, 20th Century Fox came to make a film, The Blue Max, and a lot of us got working as extras in that film. Some of us got paid extra for being there. I would have done the basic instruments for, on some of those First World War airplanes. Was there trouble on the set? There was. We had an incident in the set. As people came in, whether you were extras or technicians or anything else, we came in in our overalls, and the main actors and actresses were James Mason, Buster Andrews, and George Peppert. They'd sit down alongside you, overalls or whatever you were wearing. Some people were wearing their military stuff to make up numbers, representing the German infantry or something else, or British infantry. To make up the set, they called in Actors' Equity from Dublin, and uh, these didn't seem to be happy with us, sitting alongside James Mason, Ross Randall and Charles Pepperland. Long tables were on the, the dining area and this gentleman from Actors' Equity decided it wasn't appropriate for us to be sitting with the stars, top actors yeah. and stars, so they wanted only to be sitting beside him. So it went to the point where they were coming from the cooking area with buckets of rashers and sausages and everything else and this big gentleman got up and he'd, he'd turn him along the floor and scattered everything in protest. So James Mason got up and caught him by the neck and the hat and walked him off the set. As long as 20th Century Fox is making the film, don't you people appear in us. So we got satisfaction. Basically when I finished I probably had the price of two new tractors and I bought myself out and I started selling tractors and that's at 57 years ago and I, I my idea that time was that I always want to be a garage owner. I ended up doing always doing what I wanted to do. I was 25 I suppose when when, uh, when I started the business and we're at it uh, probably 56 years this year. I got out when I, after about 50 years and my sons have taken over the business now so This is my hobby, what I do here. Coming up, we'll hear more about the unique Museum of Irish Rural Life in Kilrush, owned and curated by local businessman Joe Whelan. Welcome back to Atlantic Tales. Joe Whelan has led a busy and interesting life. As a teenager, he joined the Irish Air Corps and was a member of the Guard of Honour for US President John F. Kennedy when he visited Ireland in 1963. 
Joe was also involved in the making of The Blue Max, a 1966 British war film starring George Peppard and James Mason. After leaving the Air Corps, Joe started his own business at the age of 25 and 50 years later retired, handing over the reins to the next generation. In the five years since then, Joe hasn't been idle for a minute. He soon began working on a hobby project, the Museum of Irish Rural Life in Kilrush, which he has established in the former Central Creamery in the town. We bought this in the height of the boom. We would have lost a lot of money because six months later would, would have been worth very little because it was basically a derelict site. We said we'd have to reconstruct it to get some bit of value back from it. Now, at the time, I would have accumulated an awful lot of old bits and pieces from going around to farmers selling tractors. And, uh, this here is one of those pieces, by the way. This truck, this stone truck, which is actually a baptismal fund. And it came originally from a castle in Kilshenny. Uh, but I went to Kilshenny one evening and I sold three new tractors. I sold a tractor to uh, a Cooney man and then I sold another one to a Tyne man. And then he said his brother, his cousin over the Smithstown Road wanted to buy it. So I went to this Todd man, doing well for, uh, for, for the day. one evening's work. <laughs> And the price of the tractor was £750. And he said, I have £700 and I'm not going to borrow £50, he said. I said, sure, look, at, I sold your brother a tractor and I can't sell you one for anything less than that. So I was going out the gate anyway, and just at the gate, this stone truck was there. And I said to him, would you sell that stone truck? I would, he says. And I said, what do you want for it? £50. £50. <laughs> and that was the sale. That I traded that stone truck in against the tractor. So it looked like a large cube of the limestone and the trough is chiselled out of it. Yeah. That's what it looks chiseled like. Chiselled out of it. Yeah. yeah. And that's here it's at the It's probably front. a couple of hundred years old. Must be. And right here in front of the creamery. Also in front of the creamery, in front of the museum, there are two very large logs, but there's a lot of history. Thousands of years of, of history in these. Tell us about these, yeah, John. The top one uh, is Black Bog Oak. The Black Bog Oak is dated roughly 56,000 years, although a man by the name of Michael O'Connell from Kilimal has sent me some information recently on it, and he says some of these are 8,000 years old. Now, uh, we had this one carbon dated, and it is 6,000 years old. We sent a sample to Belfast. And the bottom one then is uh, Scots Pine. That's 4,000 years old, roughly. Now, Scots Pine, in my time, when I was a child, was very valuable because if you found it in your land, it was used mainly for uh, making scallops for thatching houses. So these trees would be roughly maybe 10 feet under the ground, maybe five feet, maybe four feet. And to find these trees, you went out in, in a frosty morning or a dewy morning. And when these trees are underground, the land doesn't freeze above the image of the tree on the ground. And a dewy morning, if you went out early in the dewy morning, the dew doesn't fall. And the reason for it is that the tree holds the temperature better than the land above it. So when I was a child, we'd, we'd walk on the railways, which was tall, and the railway was basically much higher than the, the bog land underneath it. And when you look down across the field, you could see the image of all these trees, like you've got a box of matches in front of them along the field. So my father would say, get a couple of celly rods and stick them down. And he'd say, walk up there, 10 yards and put down a stick he'd point you where it was and then go out there and then put one at either side and then in the spring when the weather improved you would dig these trees up and they were used for hundreds of years because we didn't have a lot of uh, trees in Ireland from the the British cut, cut down all our trees back back in the, to make ships and boats after the Spanish Armada so we were left without uh, 
without timber. So the only timber we had was, was underground. And mostly in the bogs underground today, lots of these trees are there. They're not sought so much as they were 50 or 60 years ago when houses were attached. Because we didn't have hazel here like they had in North Clare. What we had, what we call the scallop sticks. That scallop stick, we call, we call it a scallop, but it's now called Scots pine. And it's not Scotch pine, by the way, it's Scotch pine. pine, it's an original yes. native tree. Yes. Purchasing the old creamery was untimely as it turned out, but you wanted to make it work, you wanted to make a few bob back out of it. Yeah. You decided to go down the road of using it as a museum, so it is now the Museum of Irish Rural Life. Correct, yeah. This was always the plan, because you had been collecting stuff during the years yourself anyway. Yeah, I remember going to Kilbeha one morning to sell a tractor to a man. I'd always buy something off every farmhouse. I'd see something, I'd say, you sell that. No, I'll give it to you, Joe, you can have it for nothing. Because yeah. when a new lady moves into this house, she'll throw out all our stuff. This would happen because she'd have no association with some of these items. Yeah. So I said, you can have it for that. And I said, no, I'll give you 10 bob or I'll give you, give you five shillings for it. But I wouldn't acquire it without paying something. So we've stepped inside because it's chilly enough outside today. So, so it was a, a big job getting the building into shape for what you wanted to do with it. The problem we had, the building was derelict for 20 years. We actually had green moss grown inside all these buildings. The, the roofs and upstairs had fallen down. The windows were all 18 inches of crow's nest. So the first wow. thing we had to do was clear the floors. The buildings were structurally very sound because they were built from very solid material. Good, good thick walls. You can thick see them there. Yeah. yeah, the walls would be roughly just over a foot, over 12 inches wide, but they're all mass concrete. The buildings are all mass concrete, so they wouldn't be considered good buildings. But fortunately enough, when we repaired all the windows and the floors and everything else as dry as it could be, very little heating required in here. We keep the temperature probably two or three degrees above normal temperature, and that protects the books and keeps the machines from rusting and everything else. I did get a good lot of help from my friends. Actually, we didn't spend a lot of money in it, just labour more than anything else. Basically, the buildings are as dry as you could expect them to be now. They're perfectly dry and there's no dampness within any of the buildings. But a lot of hard work. So the building's completed, painted up, crow's gone, dampness yeah. gone, well, green moss gone and all that. What then did you have to do, Joe, to get the museum as we see it today underway? And First thing we've done is we based the museum on how we lived and how we worked in our own farm. So that's the reflection we're given here. A life period roughly gone back a hundred years. There are some other items here, some eight or nine hundred years old, but we've reflected life in our farm. It's been all reflected here as life of most people of my age group. When I get a, a busload of older people, I had some women from Tipperary here the other day and I could hardly get rid of them. People of my age group that mostly lived and worked on farms. They saw their own life yeah. in this building. Yeah and they, they could see something they mightn't have seen in 50 years. Wow. Yeah, there's a certain amount of satisfaction in, in sharing the, our lifestyle and, and how we lived and what. That's very important. It's part of our history, part of our culture. Uh, yeah, and, people and, nowadays and probably don't. The, the way I look at it now it. is that we basically have the place completed. By next September, we, we will have the whole place finished and open to the public. Even though it's open to the public already, uh, we're still working on the last building here. Joe Whelan is a collector, curator and tour guide at his own unique museum in Kilrush, which he has developed with the help of friends. One of those who has been assisting Joe with the project is Cree native and long-time friend Pat Murrahy. I've been involved with Joe for more than 40 years. I was chairman and president of Mockland and Ferma in the county and Joe you sponsored competitions for us and he was go around to the farmers teaching, giving them courses on tractor maintenance and all the rest of it. So he sponsored many competitions for us. 
so we became friendly. And I had a little farm at the time. I bought a tractor off him, so we maintained the friendship. And I'm nearly 72 now, so when I more or less retired officially, I came in here and I've been working on and off with him for the past five years. My initial project with him was to build the block of tiles out the back and then I did maintenance on all of the roofs there. I re-roofed that building behind your back and we did maintenance on all the rest of the roofs and then we did this which is to be the part of the museum but it was also to be a, a coffee shop in, in the final analysis. When all the plans put together it was also going to be the coffee shop. That was an old ruin when we came into it, maybe four years ago, so we've transformed it. Between us, we took on the project and we completed it with some help from other people. And the credit goes to Joe completely because he has done, he made those doors and all himself. He, he has done a serious amount of work. And getting involved in a project like that, when you heard he was making a museum and having this opened up to the public, how did you react to that? What did you think about that? I noticed that he had been gathering old equipment from he would he was dealing with farmers all his life so he'd been de he'd been gathering lots of old equipment and i would have seen it along the way i knew that he had something in mind but i wasn't quite sure so i wasn't so surprised when he actually mooted this idea of the museum in the first place he bought this creamery and it was a ruin at the time he now has three businesses working in it as well as the museum and how important do you believe pat a facility a museum like that is to the local community. Well, I think it's a huge selling point. We are really meant to learn from history, aren't we? And uh, I use most of this equipment, this horse-drawn equipment and all the rest of it that's out in the air there in my younger days with my father. And history was my favourite subject always. And uh, to see history in action, you're looking at history here. And I know that he has had people from practically all over the world and certainly from all over Ireland, from schools and all the rest of it. There aren't many of these facilities around the country, not quite as big as this, that has as wide a range of artefacts from the famine and previously as this place has. If you went in there, you could be there for you hours. Literally for days, almost. <laughs> days. And also, he has he has the pamphlets and the books, and the, the, he has the history as as well as the objects that that uh, explain. He has books that explain the history as well as the the artefacts and the objects from from the way back, from two centuries. Before you enter the museum, you are met with an amount of artwork depicting scenes from Irish history dating back hundreds of years. The artist behind this work is Courtney Westhoff O'Farrell. I'm born and raised in America, originally Colorado, and I came to Ireland 14 years ago and set up life with my husband out in West Clare, and I've been here ever since, mostly homeschooling my children, and in the last five years doing art for Joe here at the museum. As homeschoolers, you're always looking for other ways to bring education to your children, give them things that they might be interested in, and having the museum here local was a no-brainer to come in and find out more about Ireland's history. Me, of course, not being from Ireland, a lot of that is very vague. Getting to come in and visit with Joe and the likes of the two Pats and look around, that's really where all of this had, like, began for me, was homeschooling my children and giving them other things about Irish history to, to look into. So learning so, about Irish history yourself and yeah, the kids yeah. as well. And in the end, you got roped into, or did you offer your services to do some work around here? I'd say it's kind of a gray area. It definitely <laughs> was a, a, an offering, but uh, because I was there 
the day that you know Joe was trying to get two artists to do what he had a vision of, I realized that because I had the, the time being flexible with the homeschooling, that it was easily something I could work to do. It was no faces, no, you know, no real history. It was basically kind of looking at images in books or, or you know, like I said, going with what the vision was that was in Joe's mind and putting that down for him to, to have a, a talking point for people coming to the museum. So, and what exactly was Joe looking for? What did so you deliver in the, the end? The very first mural that I did for Joe is inside the museum. It's in the stairwell and it was around the landlord era. So he wanted an image of a dilapidated house. There's two books and it covers that point in history for Ireland and it shows all the old manor houses and you know anything that's derelict basically. So there's there's an image there that he had in mind where the door has been the front door has been knocked in and you can see the stairs and the wallpapers peeling and time is just kind of taking over. So that's the original mural that I did for Joe. And then in addition to that, one of his favorite quotes is from Shirley. It's the scepter and crown must lie down. So I, I painted that as well in a bit of the, the old Irish font. So that was my first one. And all along, Joe goes on and tells you his vision of things. And I thought, sure, I'm, I'm good. I can go on and keep going about my business. And he goes, yes, next, next we have to paint the, as you can see here, we have to paint Ireland's history. I was like, oh, that'll be fun. You know, good for you. And next thing he shows up at my house with all the boards to paint Ireland's histories from 8,000 BC. Yeah, 8,000 BC all the way along. Yeah. Now what, what we've tried to capture there, because there, like you look and you'll see there's no Malaysians and you don't see the Duodenand because that is mostly mythical, it's folk history. So this is as best as we could figure out anything that actually involved humans. Yeah. So hence you have the Ferbolg, you have the Mesolithic era, all the way through and because it's just a snapshot, it's a film strip, it's just what was the biggest thing in history at that time. Then, of course, as you get closer to, you know, today, you see there's a lot more going on. But yeah, I've basically had to do a, a degree in history to get <laughs> Joe his, his mural here. But to tell the whole story, yeah. the local story as well, with Scattery Island. Yeah. This is a way for kids to learn before they even step yeah. inside. Yeah, it, it, the colorfulness really, it, it just it captures your attention and you might not even see all of it, but there are bits and pieces of all of it that you can zero in on and find interest and that draws you in even more. And then that's the other piece that I did. The it even looks like Joe. Yeah, well, it, we, we tried. We tried to give him the likeness does, of Joe. Yeah. But I'd and say that's that, the old Ford Model T. Yeah, it is. So and the, you've used the, the round wheels. windows at the wheels. Very yeah, the clever. wheels are actually, I believe, tractor wheels. He, he figured he had them pretty well spaced, so that's pretty much to scale for a Model T or that Model T. And I believe there's only two of those in Ireland ever. And then the yeah. most recent one, if you get to walk around the museum, is on the front of the hay barn. And that's, yeah. everyone can see that as they're driving by. That's a, a Ferguson tractor. But I, I have uh, three boards at home that I'm working on to capture the Massey Ferguson history. So at the moment, I am working on an eight by four board that has, um, I believe it's like a 1938 Massey Ferguson. Real hard wheels, steel wheels on the front and the back with the 
pokey outy things. Yeah. Um, and then you have Harry Ferguson and Henry Ford sitting at a table. Turns out it's in Deerfield, Michigan, where they did their handshake agreement for um, for Ford to take and do all the implements that Harry Ferguson had come up with. So that one and lots of other but ones. But the ones you have done, leaving aside what you will be doing in the future, what kind of time went into all of these? Oh my gosh. My husband, he, he likes to calculate things. So he often <laughs> says, yeah, yeah, you know, if you, if you figured all the hours you put into that and what you, you know, what, what you got paid, how oh, would you say your hours are 50 cents an hour? <laughs> I said, well, it depends because some of them, you know, it, it, I think as a hobby artist, when you sit down to do something, generally you already have it all worked out in your mind. You know, see, it's just in your own time and you enjoy it and this is like i said an an art degree a history degree you know i had to look up how to paint i mean i, I painted the s the best i could from the book of kells yeah. you don't just paint that out of nowhere you know as, it came as, out well oh, i'm looking at it yeah it's not bad i i sit at home and i think geez have i done it justice and then i come in and i look and i think well you know for what he's trying to accomplish, absolutely. Yeah. How important do you believe that a facility like this is? It tells the story of Irish life, literally. Yeah. Oh, no, this is absolutely, especially where, where my husband's Irish, I'm American. I did get my citizenship just before the COVID, so that was a brilliant thing for me. Um, but to be able to infuse my children with Ireland's history and our local history, to have this here is just a gold mine. You know, and, and to be able to talk about, as Joe will tell you, what this building was used for and how many people used this building, how many people would come in with their cream or would bring their chickens and it's just, you can't put a price tag on it. Was that very important to you when you came to Ireland and is it still very important to you and your husband that your children do know their history? Absolutely. Like, we are not an Irish-speaking family, so with that in homeschooling, because we're not Irish-speaking, we don't have to teach Irish. We still try. But, you know, as you know yourself, it's not spoken very much, not daily, in our part of Ireland. So I would say we're lacking that. And because we're lacking that, if you meet my children, you'd think they were Americans on holiday. They sound like me. They don't sound like my husband. And so any chance I can get to share Ireland's history, even if it is through my own what I think is important in my experiences, then I want them to have that. And I think this is a beautiful place for them to get that. Coming up, we'll hear more about Joe Whelan's Museum of Irish Rural Life in Kilrush and his brush with the Russians during the invasion of Czechoslovakia in 1968. Welcome back to Atlantic Tales. Joe Whelan established his own tractor sales business in Kilrush in 1968, soon after leaving the Irish Air Corps. He retired in recent years, leaving his sons to run the successful business, but Joe hasn't been idle. He has been working hard in recent years, realising a dream and developing his Museum of Irish Rural Life in Kilrush. The former central creamery in the town, which Joe purchased some years ago, is home to thousands of artefacts, mostly telling the story of rural life in Ireland over the past 200 years. In the main museum, but soon to be relocated to a dedicated building on site, is a collection of vintage tractors, another passion of Joe's. This tractor would be well before my time to be uh, one of the first Ferguson tractors made with a hydraulic lift. The problem you had 
the early tractors that were sent in for uh, the First World War in England and, and some to the Second World War were fortunes which were sent in for the war effort from America. weren't actually paid for the, they were loaned more than anything else and paid back for over a number of years. Biggest problem we had that time is the tractors were called widowmakers because there was no hydraulic lift in the tractor and when you put a plow behind the tractor and you drove down along the furrow at maybe two miles an hour and you were daydreaming away there because you had done 12 hours of that. And next thing the plough struck a root of a tree of some impediment on the ground like a stone and suddenly the tractor lifted up went back over you and killed you because the traction was so good on the heavy tractors that the tractor raised and went back and killed you. So the, these tractors were called widowmakers. So Harry Ferguson had come up with an idea in 1913 that heavy tractors weren't needed at all provided you could have the plough become part of the tractor and use the hydraulic system to give you traction. So he invented what they call the three-point linkage. If you struck a root of a tree or anything then the tractor didn't lift up because basically the hydraulic system protected you and the top link protected the tractor from going back over you. So this tractor here is one of the first of these tractors. It is called the Ferguson Brown. It was invented by a man by the name of Harry Ferguson from County Down and he got the David Brown Gear Manufacturing Company in north of England to uh, build the components for the tractor. The tractor had to be built to his design and to his standard. So this tractor here is one of these. Well, very few of them left in the world. And as you can see here, this tractor, we brought this tractor from England. My son bought it for me for, for my 70th birthday which was a big wow. surprise because I had, I had acquired all the other tractors, but this was the very expensive tractor. So I said, to, I'm, I'm going to England to buy this tractor. And the two boys started laughing. They had acquired this tractor and it was left at my brother's premises in Bearfield. And it was when my birthday called to pat outside the door. Big ribbon. Yeah. <laughs> it's not the only Ferguson here. There are a number of tractors here. And I think you have so many that you're going to have to move them into the building you're working on next door. That's What's right. the plan there? Well, we basically want to keep all this technical stuff away from uh, the stuff here is much more ancient and we want to put more domestic or historical farm related stuff into this space here. So the new museum will take roughly 20 tractors. So these will all be in a separate museum and you have tractor enthusiasts that just want to see tractors and nothing else. So you different types of people looking for different different items. So this second tractor here then, this is the famous tractor they call the handshake tractor. And this tractor created a sensation because when Ferguson made and, and manufactured this tractor it was 350 pounds roughly. You could buy a Fordson tractor that time for 150 pounds. So there was roughly 200 pounds of a difference. Mm -hmm. So when you bought this tractor you had to buy all the implements to go with it. But if you had an old Fordson tractor you could buy a trailer plow for two pounds at an auction or a harrow for a pound. But when you modernised with the hydraulic lift machine, you had to buy all new components. So to that actually cost you a thousand quid maybe to change your system. Yeah. So we weren't, the world wasn't ready for this modern tractor. So it couldn't be sold for the prices that the older tractors were sold for. So Ferguson decided he'd go to Henry Ford and he'd modernise his fleet of tractors. So they sat down and they done what was called the handshake agreement. And they built this tractor here, it is called a Ford Ferguson. If you look at it here, there's Ford here and Ferguson here, a combination. Now, Henry Ford manufactured the tractors and Ferguson sold them. That was the agreement. And it worked well until Henry Ford died and his son continued to manufacture the tractor without, and use Ferguson's patents without Ferguson's permission. So Ferguson took him to court and even though there was no written agreement, they called it the handshake agreement, Ferguson won the case. And he got about, I think about four million compensation for Ford using his ideas. 
So what Ferguson done then, just after the war, the Standard Motor Company factory in Coventry made aircraft engines during the war. It was owned by Mr. Black. And he went in there and he'd done a deal that he'd make his own tractor inside the Coventry plant. So he bought all the aluminium that was available and he bought all the battleship grey, 45-gallon drums of battleship grey that the Navy used. So he had cheap paint and he built the tractor from 50% aluminium. So he had a lightweight tractor at very low cost for materials. As well as that, the machining tools didn't wear as quick on manufacturing the goods because they were machining aluminium instead of cast iron, yes. like Ford's products were cast iron, which heavier. So uh, at this stage, uh, he had about 70% of the English-Irish market tractors. Now 70% would never be achieved by any manufacturer. But the tractor yeah. was so successful. I remember when my father bought a Ferguson in 1952, we had a Ford then, but he bought a Ferguson. And the salesman that time was E.J. and T.N. McCarthy in Limerick, in the inner Road, where Toyota place is now. And the salesman came out and he says, do you realize, Mr. Wheel, that we're selling you a tractor with a racing car engine? That? Because the same engine was used, made by the standard motor company, it was used on the Triumph TR2 and TR3 racing car. And when they were selling you the tractor, they tell you they were selling you a tractor with a racing car engine. But when the Triumph TR2 or TR3 or TR4 was racing in Silverstone or something, they said, there goes the racing car with the tractor engine. <laughs> but the engine was so good that it was the first engine built in the UK that could do 100,000 miles without a major overhaul. So these tractors were just like cows and every farm had one. And they were totally and utterly reliable. The citizens of Prague knew the full meaning of occupation by force. The Russians, while supposedly their allies, were not wanted. The fighting spirit of many Czechs was aroused. They retaliated against overwhelming power. But it showed the free world, and Russia too, that their desire to shape their own destiny was stronger even than the heaviest tank or the biggest gun. Joe, tell me about when you left the Air Corps, I believe you went to Czechoslovakia at one stage. Well, I set for a group was left for Czechoslovakia. The Skoda car agency was available at the time, made in, made in Czechoslovakia, and the Zeta tractor agency was also available. So we went on a fact-finding tour of Czechoslovakia. We went with a company called O'Shea's. They had been previously important to Zeta tractors for Ireland. They were big builders in Cork that built all the churches and stuff and they owned the place in George's Key. But they had acquired the place in Denise Road, so we got friendly with them anyway, and there was a tour organised that we'd go to investigate what was in Czechoslovakia. Of course, Czechoslovakia was behind the Herden Court, and it was a, a different kettle of fish than we thought it was. So we went out anyway and stayed there for about three weeks. But we visited the Tatra Mountains, the skiing resorts, and all the historical places, and Czechoslovakia, Prague and Jardis Fort and all these places. But as we travelled through the country, we saw things we never saw before. We saw people lying on the side of the road, drunk. There was a lot of alcoholism there, and we thought it was very unusual, but a beautiful country. So as we travelled along the, the roadways, we saw lines of Russian tanks approaching us. We thought this was normal, so it became a bit abnormal because of the continuity of this. And someone went up to the interpreter, there wasn't a bus, and, and uh, asked her what was going on. And she was crying. She put her finger up to her mouth as much as the spies in the bus. Eventually, when we came to Prague Airport to come home, there was two lines of Russian tanks around Prague Airport. We got out. Just in time. Just in time. Just in time. When the tractors then, Joe, are moved out to the building you're working on at the moment, yeah. what are you going to do in here? They'll give you a bit more room to, to yeah, work with. Yeah, give us more room. We have some items here that are more agricultural related and getting away from mechanisation. We've lots of tools like these. And some of these tools are very interesting because if you take the slaw here for cutting turf, for example, you see two slaws there, number six. 
and one of them is for a right-hand operator and one of them is for a left-hand operator. All right. Now, the reason for that, when I was a child, we would have cut a lot of turf in our house. My father often employed 10 people cutting turf. The turf was put on the railway wagons for Limerick. The problem you had with the railway wagons, when you got to Innes, the wagons had to be emptied and refilled for the wide gauge railway going into Limerick. So the gauge on the track going well, to West Clare was different yeah, to the gauge on the track gauge going to Limerick. you came to the wide yeah. gauge railway. So in Innes, they had to employ a lot of people unloading the wagon. As well as that, you had a weight reduction because a lot of dust would have accumulated from the, the handling of turf a second time. And by the time we got into Limerick, you didn't have the same weight or volume as you had when the turf was loaded originally. You didn't get paid what you expected to get And paid. the other thing about it, that system worked out well until after the Second World War, a lot of trucks appeared in the market. Surplus trucks, they came into Northern Ireland, Bedfords and Commons and stuff like this. They were sold off for handy money. And uh, the people around Limerick that just drying the turf, there were people like the Herons and the Kellys. They bought these cheap trucks and they started going into the bogs and bringing the turf out directly from the bogs and into their depots in Limerick where they bagged the turf and sold it off for a half crown a bag. So that, the railway volume for turf started to disappear, I'd say about 1955 or 56, because the trucks were much more efficient than the railway system. So the railway lost business. Now the story about the, getting back to the salon. The people cutting turf with transient labour, more so in Mayo maybe in Donegal than Clare, but they would go to up to Lincolnshire in wintertime when the turf was loaded and, 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 and sold, and they'd work picking the potatoes and they'd work in the beet factories. So while they were there, they all worked implants with their left foot. So when they came back to cut the turf the following year, they'd come back the following year, the slans had to be converted to right foot for them. So if you were cutting a bank of turf, you had three bars roughly in the bank of turf. There were teams of six. There was three spreading the turf and three cutting it. So the team that would have come back from England to cut the turf would have to have stands suitable yeah. for a left-hand operator. So they couldn't work on the same bank. They'd have to cut from north to south or south to north. So they'd have to start in a different bank of turf. So that's why you have the two stands here, mat number six. One of them is for the left hand and one of the right hand. Right hand. Looking around the museum, Joe, you've upstairs as well. Just looking on this wall alone, there must be thousands of individual items in the whole museum. Yeah, well, we have tried to, to lay out the place in such a way as each section represents some part of our life. You know, there's the agricultural implements and uh, implements especially for dealing with animals, killing the pig and so forth. There's a very interesting one here, for example. Every house was totally self-sufficient when I was a child. Once you had, uh, you had the garden of potatoes and carrots and parsnips and we would have a good lot of tillage when we were kids. We'd have uh, barley and oats. The land wasn't good enough to grow wheat but we'd have barley and oats and pigs had to be fed. There'd be maybe two sows in the house and banners would be brought to, to market in Kilrusha every month or so, or two, two months. And then the killing of the pig was a big issue and this was the instrument that would be put in the pig's forehead to be hit with a sledge. And you, I would never forget the sound of a pig after being struck with that and killed. To live with you forever. Go ahead, I guess. Yeah. But it's part of life. It's part of what life was growing up yeah, in, but, all over Ireland. Nowadays, when we went to the shop for, for our requirements, tea, sugar, soap and went on. We supplied everything. Everything was in the house. We got fish in the river. We, the river went at the back of our house and with no shortage of fish and we, the ability to catch the fish was important. We ate salmon for three or four months of the year and bacon and cabbage and on the Sundays we'd go shoot, in winter time we'd go shooting along the river we'd always have a couple of wild duck. They'd be plenty 
geese and, and chickens and ducks. So every Sunday we'd have a goose, or a couple of ducks or a couple of chickens. We bought very little. Very self-sufficient. We produced everything. And was that typical, Joe, of most families yeah, when you were growing? Yeah, most farming families would have lived the same way. Maybe some families were more industrious than others, but most would be totally self-sufficient. And it didn't matter whether there was a war in, in Poland or England or anything. I was born during the war, I was born in 1943, and my mother used to always say that in 1943 there was an awful scarcity of tea. So uh, I was never a tea drinker. <laughs> never? Uh, I'm only joking now. I spoke to Courtney earlier about all the lovely cards on the side of the building which tell Irish history. On the gable end, very visible from the main road, there's a large mural there and a big story behind that. Yeah, most people associated that with the famine, but it's not actually, it comes from the land war periods in the 1880s, what we call the Michael David period, where Michael David uh, was promoting fair rent, fixity of tenor and freedom of sale. That photograph was taken in Carnicella in the 1880s and the house was Medigan's house. Now the man in the roof is unique because that's the only photograph from that period taken with a man in the roof. Well, I thought the photograph was so important that we should print it. So when we get the tourist bus passing here every morning, all the CIE buses and so forth, they all line up and have a photograph taken. But that photograph has now gone all over the world of that painting. So that's why it's important to display it's visually attainable. It's not, you don't have to come into the museum to get it. So this photograph, I'm sure, is all over all the over state the in America. But it state. draws people's attention to what's inside the building, though, as well. It does, and, and some people come in and then they say, is, is this a famine museum? It's a different interpretation. What we're trying to show is Irish life over a period of 150 or 200 years that has evolved over the traditions that I have been told about. So we try and retain those traditions as best we can within the building. Let's see what's upstairs then, Joe, because it's a fairly comprehensive spread. And it's a large building. This is the old central creamery. Yeah, and we put everything back exactly as it was. All the floors are done with pitch pine, and we replaced anything that was damaged, so it's back exactly as it was. The painting here, by the way, as you come up the stairs, is from the inside of a landlord's house that was photographed. The poem, their debt delivered, or scepter and crown was tumbled down in the dustbin, could be able to pull crooked side and spade and Courtney painted that into the wall. There's the crooked side, there's the crooked spade, and there's the decay and the crown. Yes. In other words, we're all equal in debt. Every little corner has a story to tell. Yeah. This part of the building and the place underneath was a chicken production area. They produced three million chickens. They bought four million eggs. So some of those eggs were gluggled, some of them got broke, and the broken eggs were given to the hospital across the way to be used daily. But the other eggs were hatched out in a hatchery downstairs, and three million chickens were boxed in this building. If you look at this thing here, not Clare Creameries in this time, and put on the West Clare Railway daily. And there's the record of the eggs that were bought here, gone back about 80 years. And the last person that worked here was Marla Sheedy from Curry Clare, and she was married to John Daly up in Kilmurray, and she gave me this book. She was the last poultry boss that was here, and all the records are here. So not only the story of Irish rural life, the story of what went on here in the old Yeah, it's all incorporated into the building. The records of the milk that was brought in here going back to the 1930s are all here. I can go back and get my grandfather's milk. All the old books. And McFall, my uncle, was a big purchaser of butter here. His name is here for his butter purchase and these books as well. This is a very interesting book because it is dated to about 120 years old. It came from a shop down in uh, Kildyset. They called it the Honk. It was a pub that was, was there because coffin ships actually uh, came in there one time. And each person that bought something in that, this is dated 1911. 
and what they were buying brand and basics. So if we give you a whole idea of what people bought in the shop, all the contents that was in that shop came from fines. So if you look here, there's twopence freight, a penny freight, and sixpence freight. So everything, there was freight in every item you bought. That time, when you paid your bill in the shop, it was crossed off. So all the names from that area are still in the area. So some of these weren't crossed off, in other words, the bills were not paid. Yeah, a few there still not crossed off, yeah. <laughs> Still waiting to be paid. Very interesting when you know those people. <laughs> the young people coming in and older people coming in, and you're telling stories. They must be mesmerised. They must be really taken aback by some of the stories. Well, I suppose we're a generation apart, or two generations apart, and that's what I'm talking about would have been continuous for maybe 150 years. There'd have been no major changes in the way people lived. You know, apart from mm. the famine period when, when food was shot and scarce, people would have lived like that for 200 years with no major change. Now we have... We go to the supermarket for this, that and the other thing. You know, even the, the, the bacon we buy at the supermarket now. That wouldn't be heard of in our time. Especially when I saw bottled water first and I saw it coming on television one night about how great bottled water. I said, who'd be buying water? Things <laughs> <laughs> became too easy. Yeah. But our young people, our kids particularly, they must be amazed when they come in here. They'd be amazed at what we're talking about now because they'd be of the impression that these kind of things never happened. But I'd be 80 years in, in September, so I'd have seen something and I'd see, have, you know, the traditions and that was passed down from word to mouth would go back 200 years. You know, my grandmother now, when she lived with us, she was born in the 1860s, that's immediately after the famine. So her mother would have gone through the famine. So these are all more or less continuity. You see a lot of history, a lot of stuff is written in books now, but you know, the word of mouth passed from one generation to another is very important. You're keeping all of that alive, of course, as well here. You're telling stories young people won't appreciate. But they might go back to their grandmother and say, yeah, I knew that happened, or we did that ourselves. Do young people particularly leave here believing and understanding and appreciating more how generations before them live? I suppose they do, at, at, at least they have the story anyway, whether it sinks in, or otherwise you could put a question mark on it, but possibly. Yeah. What is your hope for the Museum of Irish Rural Life? You're still developing it. By September, you'll be up and running fully. What is the hope long term? Well, we would have the idea that next generation, the family will be able to create continuity. There'll be livelihood for somebody here. And uh, our family would always be interested in history because my father always said, when he learned the history of America, everyone should know that history. Now, the fireplace in our own house is this fireplace here. When my father and mother died, they were hated for the hundred both of them. We said that we'd, we'd copy or we'd take the inside of the house out and put most of the what was there in here. So basically what you're looking here is the original inside of our house. And I remember when we were kids, six or seven of us would be sitting around there saying the rosary. You wouldn't go to bed at night to the rosary was said. It was kind of uh, 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 strictly carried out, especially certain months of the year. So I often sit down there at night and I can view all of us sitting around the fireside. Send the rosary. Kneel in your chair backwards with your backside <laughs> to the fire. <laughs> so this is a recreation of your old kitchen at home? That's right. Everything here would be consistent except the table. The table was much bigger because there was nine people in the house and there was seven in the family, my father and mother and uh, my grandmother there for up to 1955. So um, there'd be nine or ten people, lots of people in the house at that time. And everyone had a job. One person, no matter how small you were in the turf, the other one fed the cows and the other one went, to, went to, and brought in beef and turnips to be pulped for the animals. So everyone had a job. Everyone had a job. And very organised. 